Welcome to the OT lifestyle movement. This is for the occupational therapy visionaries and the ones who see things differently. We're moving our profession forward through living and leading a truly holistic lifestyle. Hey, hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the OT lifestyle movement podcast. I'm Rhiannon Crisp, occupational therapist, personal trainer, and founder of otlifestylemovement.com. Today, we are talking all about soft tissue and the role and scope of occupational therapists working in this exciting practice area. And we are joined by Jordan Vander Vanderheisen, Westheisen. Oh my gosh, I knew that was going to be a difficult one. It's a toughie. Vander, Vander, do you you mind, Jordan? Yeah, so Jordan Vanderheisen, it's a tricky one. Yes. Fantastic. And Jordan specializes in the area of soft tissue. He and his business partner, Taylor Nicholas, founded their first soft tissue clinic in 2019 and now have grown two clinics around Perth. Jordan is passionate about helping clients understand their injuries and issues so that they can get back to the occupations that they love. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah, so cool to have you here, Jordan. I'm really looking forward to diving into this and learning heaps more about soft tissue and what we can do in this area. Um, But as you know, before we start, we hit the rewind button and we'd love to learn a little bit about you and how you came to working in this area of practice. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a bit of a long story, so I'll try and keep it a more condensed version. But um, basically, um, during my last few years of uh, high school, wasn't sort of 100% sure what I wanted to do. I was interested in the medical side of things in terms of health um, and helping people. Um, was tossing up between a few things. I decided to go down the route of uh, exercise sports science with a pathway through to physiotherapy. Um, did that for six months and ended up pretty much hating it um, and thought this is definitely not what what uh, thought it would be um, so after those uh, after those six months basically took a bit of a gap year um, just did a little bit of working a little bit of traveling just sort of re- re-evaluating things um, and then from there happened to of chance to stumble across the area of soft tissue OT um, my mum went and saw a soft tissue OT and said listen, this is probably something that you, you really enjoy. I suggest you come check it out. I was lucky enough to shadow uh, at that uh, clinic for a day. And then, yeah, basically from there got hooked. And uh, <laughs> admittedly, I uh, didn't really know the full scope of OT. Um, before, before I sort of went into the area of soft tissue OT, I didn't really know what OTs did besides probably pediatrics, which I guess is the, is the vast majority of people out there. So I thought, yeah, how could a OT be helping, you know, people with injuries and in that if they're not uh, pediatrics? Um, so then went into uh, university and studied uh, at uni there. And then, um, yeah, basically we're lucky enough. I think our university that we went to, uh, Edith Cowan, is one of the only, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, universities that offer a soft tissue OT sort of clin- uh, clinical uh, unit. Um, so was lucky enough to get into that. And then, yeah, my final final prac um, was all geared towards um, soft tissue OT. Basically, from the first day I arrived at, at uh, uni, I wanted to go into soft tissue OT. And then I yeah, was lucky enough to follow it through and then straight from there, um, finished high school, finished uni, and then went straight through to uh, soft tissue OT. Wow. So you knew from the outset, you knew from the word go that that was exactly the path that you wanted to take. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's always been a passion of mine is about sort of the human body and, and uh, finding out all the, the weird and wonderful things that 
that that ent entailed in that and i think it's like i said i was starting off going down sort of the physio route and my my um uh cousin she's actually a physio she's now in england um so i really liked what she was doing but it was very different to what people i guess see versus actuality of what what things can go into and then yeah i got a little bit disgruntled but then ever since i found ot yeah soft tissue was always going to be my avenue that's amazing. That's so cool. Can you talk to us about what the difference was for you between physiotherapy or physical therapy and occupational therapy? What was it that drew you to OT? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one that I probably get asked every day in clinic, what's the difference between physio and OT? Um, and I guess to sum it up, I think the perspectives are very different. And um, we always have that holistic um, sort of mind frame or, or approach that we use, which I think has you almost become a bit of a buzzword, the old holistic, which is a good thing. Um, but uh, now even uh, your physio is also starting to use that. So I guess to sum it up from my point of view, and I can't obviously speak for physios, but what I was exposed to in my, in my early uh, studies of that was very um, exercise prescription based, um, going in there and doing exercises and wasn't a lot of sort of I like looking at a, at a broader view in terms of, yes, looking at the injury side and looking at the anatomy, which is important, but also looking at how the person influences their recovery and their, and their functioning. So whether it be psychological, um, spiritual, mental, and then physical, and then incorporating that all into one. And I think I always tell my, my patients that we're not a piece of meat um, attached to bone. We're so much more than that. And uh, if we were just meat attached to bone, my job would be a lot easier. Um, but it's, it's a lot more complex than that. So I guess I like the perspective of, of sort of taking all of those elements and looking at them and how they impact in the relationship to, to our functioning and our injury. Yeah, wow, I love that. Okay, well, let's dive into it. Let's get into soft tissue therapy. Can you explain to us what that exactly is? What, what is soft tissue therapy? Yeah, sure. So I guess the, the PC uh, definition for it is, the diagnosis, um, assessment, and treatment and rehabilitation of primarily musculoskeletal um, conditions and, and issues. Um, so basically, we'll go through and, and assess the person in front of us, whether they come in with an injury, injury uh, whatever it may be. We assess them, and then we give them the diagnosis. And then from there, we, we sort of plot uh, a bit of a treatment plan. Um, we used hands-on um, therapy, manual therapy, as well as sort of exercise prescription and um, exercise rehabilitation. Um, and then, yeah, we, we basically put those two together and then I guess it's very OT in the fact that we're looking at goals. So whatever the person's goal may be, whether it to be pain-free or to get back to performing a high level sport or um, just to be able to do something a little bit better. I've got sometimes CrossFitters coming in that want to just be able to get into the front rack position a bit easier. Might not necessarily be something that's hugely, I guess, important to somebody like myself, but for them, it's a meaningful occupation. So how can they get back to that? So yeah, we use hands-on therapy, um, exercise prescription and uh, exercise rehabilitation as well. I love that. That's a really comprehensive definition and um, overview of it. Thank you for that. Yeah, so no what kind of referrals do you get? Like who walks through your door needing help? Um, we like to say anybody. Um, basically, we, we uh, get a lot of, uh, I would say a vast majority of our, of our clientele patients are um, private. So they, we don't require any referrals. They can just walk in off the street, come to one of our clinics, um, and we can see them there. We also get uh, quite a quite a few referrals from um, GPs and uh, and some uh, nurse practitioners as well. Um, so our clinic uh, in the northern suburbs that we have here in Perth is um, 
LinkedIn with a, a uh, or part of a GP clinic there. I think there's about 12 or 13 um, GP practitioners that are there, a couple of nurses, um, diabetes, diabetes educator as well. And we basically form part of their, their overall health clinic. And um, so we get a lot of referrals through them. We also cover, cover things like um, insurance commission um, cases, whether it be a motor vehicle accident, um, workers' compensation, uh, we also do a little bit of uh, DVA as well. So a bit of everything really um, is what, what we sort of take in. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that people who don't necessarily have an injury but want to increase their performance or optimise their performance in some area, they are also coming to you for assistance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we see a broad range of, of patients um, from all different ages, from all different backgrounds as well. Um, but we do work with quite a few, I guess, athletes and, and elite and emerging athletes as well. Um, at the beginning of this year, we're actually involved in uh, developing a bit of an injury prevention and high performance uh, program at one of uh, the uh, one of the WA um, Gymnastic Academy. So basically, we went in there and we sort of overrun the injury prevention program, and then also looked at how we can get them basically performing their occupation a little bit better and more efficiently and reduce the injury risk as well. So yeah, you don't necessarily have to just have an injury, um, can come for different reasons as well. Alrighty, so in your clinic, are you seeing adults only or are you working with people across the lifespan, including kids? And is this an area that soft tissue OTs work in particularly? Can you give us a bit of yeah, give a bit of background on that. So uh, we see everyone. Um, the youngest that I've treated, I think, from memory was was just over a year old. Um, and then, yeah, we see all the way up to basically if they can come into our clinic through the doors, then we'll, then we'll treat them. So we see across across the lifespan as well. Okay. Yeah, amazing. That's awesome. Um, all righty. So let's get into assessments. Like what, yep. can, what are you assessing? What are you screening for? And what kinds of assessments do you use in your practice? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess uh, when I first came out of university, I was probably chock full of models. And as we, as we go through and they, and they sort of shove them down your throat. So I was expecting to sort of be using a little bit of the models. And I guess we still do use them, but not as structured from 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 that point of view and um, so assessments we use a lot of uh, orthopedic testing um, obviously all the assessments are based on the, the client in front of you so it depends on what what their presentation is what their um, injury is what their mechanism is as well but basically we'll go through some uh, history background so talking to the patient and getting them to to uh, speak about their sort of occupations their background what what they can do what they can't do um, giving a thorough uh, assessment from that end. And then we move through more into the uh, standardized assessments. So looking at orthopedic testing, um, we do manual muscle testing as well, some functional movement screening too. So getting things to do like um, calf uh, length tests, uh, squatting, um, mobility work, all that sort of stuff. And um, we take that and we basically blend it all together uh, using those different ones to give us a, a, a pointing in the right direction of a diagnosis. Um, but I, I guess it's, there's quite a lot of fluctuation and change. We're not sort of standard as, as we don't have one, um, I guess, uh, assessment that we flow through for everyone, like one, two, three. It really varies and depends on the person in front of us. And I think that's something that we, we like um, because everyone's different. And even if two patients come in with the same um, mechanism of diagnosis, 
their uh, injury or their or their or their presentation or their symptoms or how their symptoms and mechanisms are related can be so different. Um, for example, got a um, a patient at the moment who's got a uh, L5S1 disc bulge, um, and then I had a new patient come in last week who's got a, also an L5S1 disc bulge, and um, on their reporting, so from from the MRI, they basically could be the same person if you looked at what the report said but very, very different presentations in terms of one was what we classify as compression intolerance. So any sort of force compressing was really causing his aggravation. Um, and the other patient was to do with more uh, flexion intolerance. So bending forward was their real aggravation. So we like to leave it quite um, open. Um, there are obviously some, like we said, the orthopedic tests that, that are, are, are replicable and um, give us a good pointing uh, in the right direction. But yeah, we like to leave it quite open so that we can pick and choose what we need to for the patient in front of us. Mm, yeah, I love that. With those two case studies there, can you give us some examples of what you would be, I mean, initially what your assessments were for both of these? Because on paper, you received pretty much the same thing. So I, I'm imagining you do the same sort of assessment for both. But from then, from that point, where did you head with each of those clients? Yeah, so um, I guess... Starting with as they work, walk through the door. So literally, we're assessing their walking gait as they the, the way that our, our clinic is set up is that um, we sort of go to the waiting room, pick up the patients from there, and then we guide them into our into our treatment room. Um, so our assessment really begins from there. Um, we're literally assessing how they're moving, getting up out of the chair, how they're walking, what their walking gait's like, or they're favoring one side, or they're protecting, um, giving protecting postures or anything like that. Um, and that gives us already a sort of a bit of an indication as to what what's going on um, with the patient. And then they come into our room, um, we'll get them to sit down next to us and we just basically start with a chat and we leave it quite open-ended and we say, well, how can I help you basically? What brings you through these doors? Um, and then we let the, let the uh, patient in front of us sort of guide and dictate. Obviously, we sort of get it back to on track if we need to and redirect them as we can, but getting the good understanding from their point of view what really is their main concerns and, and I guess what their goals are helps us to guide what we do next. Um, and then, yeah, an example of the case study with the, with the two gentlemen that I have. Um, so we go through quite a battery of tests when we're dealing with low back pain. As, as, as we know, low back pain is quite um, complex and there's so many, <laughs> there's so many uh, little nuances involved in it as well. Um, and uh, we've done, our, our practitioners have done extensive training around this and we've done um, further training. Uh, McGill, I don't know if you know Stuart McGill, we do a lot of his uh, McGill method work as well. And that basically, that from that assessment will actually guide us as to not only what issue is there, what diagnosis, but what is the mechanism? And that's really getting down to the root cause of what's going on. So for example, if they both got disc bulges, on paper, that's their diagnosis, but it doesn't tell us what cause the, the disc bulge or what their um, symptoms or impact on their function are. So um, in the case of the uh, patient who was compression tolerant, he basically was standing from the waiting room. It was really interesting to see. He was standing in the waiting room. I came and got him, brought him across to, to our treatment uh, room, uh, offered him a seat, said, come take a seat for me. And he said, oh, is it okay if I stand? And that already was sort of a bit of a flag going up and going, okay, this is interesting. And he's like, yeah, well, sitting for, for more than three, four minutes really, really caused a lot of pain and I get a referral down, down the leg. Whereas conversely, the, um, uh, the patient who had a, a, a flexion intolerance he was happy to sit down, um, didn't really cause much grief, but it was actually getting out of the chair that was really, really quite painful for him. So that 
I guess already starts to diverge. You can see how the two are different, even though they are the same diagnosis on paper, they're very, very different in their presentations and how their treatment would progress from there as well. Mm, mm, interesting, very interesting. And I suppose this is where we really need to um, be switched on and asking about their story, their narrative, what their capacity is and getting it through their lens um, because this 100%. is what matters and this is this is what we do best as occupational therapists is yeah. understanding their narrative and the meaning behind the injury or the, the yeah issue. exactly and I mean that's that's the thing with it <laughs> it's a little bit um, <clears throat> I guess we're a little bit constrained in terms of time because we are time-based in the way that we operate, I would love to have an hour and a half initial, initial um, assessments with, with each of my patients, but um, <laughs> time and, and money won't allow that to happen. Obviously, we've got a specific allotment of time that we've got for each patient. And um, if we were to do an hour and a half assessment, then we obviously have to have to charge in response to that. And I don't think that would, uh, yeah, many patients would, would like that too much. So um, yeah, we would love to have a little bit more time, but as we go forward, the, the, the key, like you said, and summed it up so nicely there, um, is that getting them to tell their own story. And I would say, from my point of view, the, the subject of, I guess, discussion more than assessment really points me, I would say, 80% down, down the track in terms of what I'm looking for, what I think is going on with them, what uh, diagnosis they have, what impact they have. And then the real sort of, I guess, uh, objective testing just helps to either confirm or or point me in another direction. But most of the time from what my uh, discussion with the patient is, I'm pretty pretty confident with, okay, this is gonna be one of two things. And then I go down that route with the uh, orthopedic testing. Mm. Okay, you've mentioned orthopedic testing a few times now. Can I just dive into this? Cause I'm not familiar with this and there might be other listeners too. What exactly is orthopedic testing? What does it involve? Good question. I probably should have got a, got a uh, proper um, definition from, from Google or something like that. But basically, orthopedic testing is um, testing that has been um, assessed and, and studied um, to show relevance to specific pathology. So, for example, um, a straight leg raise test is one of the orthopedic testing for disc bulges. And that's basically where you lie a patient on their back. And then you're lifting up their leg um, and between, I think it's from memory, between about 30 degrees to about 65, 70 degrees. If they're feeling pain in their back and down their leg, then that's a good indication that they have a disc bulge that's bulging out and um, pinching on their, on their nerves. Um, so the orthopedic testing is a set criteria of specific tests that we use to, to guide. And they've got good um, studies backing up on, in terms of their um, significance and how accurate they are as well. Mm. Okay, and so you've obviously done a lot of extra study because like you said in the beginning, this was something you did touch on at university. I, I don't remember any of this and I'm sure there's a lot of other OTs who haven't really done in-depth training in this area. It's quite a specialty area that we have. What sort of training, what additional courses or trainings have you done to really upskill in this area? Um, a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. Um, I'm biased because I, I love this area the most, uh, and I think there's a lot of a lot of learning to be done. It never stops. I guess that's like in any OT, you never stop learning. But in us in particular, because there's so many complexities, and I guess because there's also a huge body of knowledge out there already, 
Um, it allows us to actually take that knowledge and then apply it and it's always ever changing. So from that perspective, there's a lot of ongoing study that we do, not only CPD, um, but also extra stuff in the actual area of soft tissue. So um, me personally, I did a uh, what we call level one soft tissue um, uh, course while I was still in university. And then I did a level two soft tissue course as well. I don't know if, I believe there are some over East as well, but but this was run by a, a WA uh, soft tissue. Um, and uh, she, yeah, she she's quite renowned across WA for, for her teachings. And, and that was basically level one course and a level two course. And I did those while I was at, at university. And then from there, it was basically the, the clinic that I was at. Um, I learned a lot of a lot of uh, my I guess my knowledge and my expertise from that. It was just ongoing training from mentors there that have been involved in this area for 16, 18, 20 years um, ongoing and just trying to be a sponge and learn as much as I can from them. Um, and then when we split off and started doing our own clinics, it was basically trying to find the best in the field, whether it be locally or across the rest of the world and just try and soak up as much knowledge from them as possible. So attending symposiums, um, a lot of, I guess, physio um, conventions and stuff. Um, we'd always be the ones there that were, that were representing OT, but um, yeah, we're trying to basically cover all our boxes and, and, and get in contact with many people from that. And then we did a, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, Stuart McGill, who's um, probably my biggest man crush. Um, he's an absolute legend when it comes to lower back pain. He's a Canadian professor. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to spend some time with him and also um, do one of his courses as well. So that's, you know, real, real big, um, a real big help. And I guess it's just ongoing, but those are some of, some of the courses that I've done so far. And doesn't it make a difference? Like I can feel your passion through the screen. It makes such a difference when you're diving into professional development work because it's a personal interest as well. Like it's something that you're fired up and you want to learn about. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think um, sometimes I'm probably hard to separate, I guess, work from, from um, not work or personal life because it becomes so involved. Like I said, if you're passionate, I mean, I, I'm on the, on my, on my phone when I have a break and I'm looking at, you know, podcasts or, or YouTube videos of uh, the latest research coming out about runners or knee pain or Achilles tendinopathy or anything like that. So it's, it's really, I guess I'm lucky in the fact that I, I really, really do love what I do and, and, and learning more is not only a way to help me as a, as a practitioner, but also just finding out more about the body is just so amazing. I mean, research about like tendons and how they have analgesic properties is just like it's mind blowing. So I really, really enjoyed it. And it makes it, it makes it a lot, I guess, a lot easier if you're actually passionate about it, then you, you don't have to convince yourself, okay, I need to do, I need to do some more study. You almost want to do, and you sort of reading all the latest research as it comes out. Yeah. You get a bit obsessed, don't you? <laughs> and not just you, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about everyone who's listening, who can resonate with this. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what are your personal passions? Like, do you do any sport? Like, where is this fuel from? Um, yeah, I I, uh, I was always, and I guess that's probably what led me into the area and why I was sort of fascinated originally by uh, physiotherapy was um, the fact that I was very sporty um, and got injured a lot <laughs> as a youngster. Um, I I probably am not the most athletically gifted person out there. Um, I think I do all right, but I, I was a little bit lazy when it came to training and strength conditioning and that sort of stuff. So I probably relied a little bit more on my natural talents and didn't work as hard as others um, and then as a result got injured quite a lot um, I actually fractured my um, my hip bone when I was 
well, about 15 um, complete fracture through the hip bone. So um, that was, it was not even a great story. It wasn't um, anything cool. I, I wish it was a lot. Of a I was cool going to say, how did you do it? <laughs> yeah. I wish it was like something like I got attacked by a shark or something like that. You know, that would be, that would at least be cool. But I was basically just playing soccer, went to kick the ball, missed, missed the ball completely. And then that's what did it. Um, and the doctors think it was because I was going through a big growth spurt. So my, my bones were quite soft and, and still developing. And then, yeah, basically had a hairline fracture through the whole of the pelvis there. Um, and so, yeah, I've been in and out of, of physios and, and doctors through my whole sort of sporting career. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, my last, I guess my last contact sport that I played was um, rugby and um, ended up in, in hospital with, with a, uh, a head injury from that. So that basically made me hang up the boots from a contact point of view. Um, but still love being in sports, uh, golf, cricket. Um, I, I play um, actually just this year, me and my fiance um, decided to take on triathlon. Um, so I think dealing with a lot of patients that we got quite a lot of endurance based athletes that we've seen in the clinic, um, they sort of inspired us to take on a little bit more of a challenge. And we decided that at the beginning of this year, yeah, we'll, we'll do a triathlon. And so we've got into triathlon training and that's been really, really quite fun. Ooh, when do you start? Have you, have you had your first triathlon yet? Yeah. So we did our first triathlon in, in uh, March, I think it was this year. Um, so we started in, in mid Jan, um, did our training and we actually joined up with a, a, a triathlon club, which has been great. Um, so we've been training and then, yeah, we did our first triathlon, done a couple of um, running events as well. Um, and then over the last, I would say probably month, month and a half, due to the weather and the cold and the rain, haven't been as motivated to get out and train at 4am or 5am in the morning when it's raining and cold. So things have sort of dropped off a little bit during during winter. And I guess it's sort of the off, off season for endurance. Um, so we're just doing our own sort of stuff. But yeah, we'll start picking it up in the next sort of month or two and get back and hopefully do a couple more uh, triathlons this uh, this year. Yeah, right. Well, you can be my source of inspiration for that because I'd like to get back into that <laughs> or running some longer distances. So I'll have to keep following your stories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if, if, yeah, if I, can, if I can enjoy running, then I think anybody can because, yeah. <laughs> I hated I hated it, but now I'm actually yeah enjoying running. Oh, that's good. That's good. It's a, it's definitely a mindset shift, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, let's get into evidence based interventions that you use in your practice and your clinic. What kind of interventions are you using? What do they look like? What are the range that fall under the OT umbrella? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, I, I guess again, it's probably similar to a lot of our assessments um, in the fact that we don't necessarily use structured interventions um, as such, but um, we're using basically hands-on manual therapy. And again, depending on, the, uh, depending on the, the patient in front of us and what they've got as their issue or condition, uh, but we'll use a lot of hands-on therapy, so actual hands-on treatment, um, dry needling, um, myofascial release, all that sort of stuff as well. And then we'll um, start to do exercise prescription as well. So in our clinic that we've got set up, we've got um, space or area where we can do or uh, some of our exercises and basically show our patients how to do them correctly and, and do a little bit in clinic. So depending on, on what their presentation is, we'll get them uh, into the clinic doing some, some actual exercises uh, as we go along um, in the actual session. And then from there, we're basically giving them the exercise, I guess a home exercise program to follow with. Um, one of the big things that has really been uh, great for us uh, since I guess COVID, one of the silver linings has been the use of um, technology so we've actually really 
jumped on using technology for our home exercise prescription. So we use a, uh, and I'll really, really emphasize them. It's probably a bit of a, a free plug for them, but um, Telehab is one that we've been using um, and they really got a huge range of exercise. It's a, basically an exercise platform. And um, all that the patients do is they sort of uh, download an app free for them to use. And then we put on the exercise program and send it through to them. And then they can basically follow along at home as they as they see fit, or hopefully doing as we as we tell them to do. Um, but yeah, I guess it's really open. We don't necessarily use um, a set evidence base. We're basically basing it off evidence. Um, so, for example, I guess as a, a little bit more practical is Achilles uh, tendinopathy. So the old school saying of uh, tendinitis is probably on its way out, and we refer to it now um, as uh, tendinopathy. Um, so tendon-related in injury or issue. Um, so with them, we're basically doing some, uh, normally runs between about eight to 10 weeks, depending on the patient in front of us, but we're doing um, hands-on treatment. And then we start to transition onto some loading for, for the tendons. Um, and uh, basically we're giving them daily. Initially, it starts out with daily exercises. So just some simple calf raises. Um, so dynamic work for the, uh, for the uh, knees and a little bit for the ankle range of motion. Um, and then we start loading them through. So although it's not a set specific um, evidence-based protocol, we're using that evidence to guide um, our, our uh, exercise prescription as well as our treatment. And again, tailoring to the person in front of them. So we base it off all of our evidence-based um, practice comes from the latest research, um, but basically tweaking it from our own experience, but also to the patient in front of us as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Because it's going to be tailored to them. There's not a one size fits all approach. It, no matter what sort of gold standard there is out there, it absolutely. always has to be tailored to the individual. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, and again, going off my man crush, um, Stuart McGill, he, he literally, I love listening to podcasts and, and he gets asked all the time about specifics and he says, it depends. And I think that sums it up so well. It's, it, it depends on the context and the person in front of you. It really does. Mm. And this is why, again, back to OT, you know, because we look at the person, we look at their environment, we look at the occupation that they want to get back yeah. into. And this is where there's that differentiation between OT and any other profession. Exactly. And I think that's so, so important. I mean, a lot of the times I would say if in, a, in an ideal world, we put a lot of my patients in a bubble for four weeks, given treatment and exercises, and they will be right as rain, you know, but in, in reality, that, that, that never happens or that very rarely happens that we can do that. So being able to adapt to the person in front of you and knowing that might not necessarily go as quickly or as smoothly as you want, but that's life really. And, and um, you yeah, know, like you said, it, it, it really comes down to our view and understanding that, yeah, we can't follow the textbook. Um, life doesn't go according to plan all the time. So being able to adjust and, and having that perspective definitely makes a huge difference. Mm, yeah. There's something Winnie Dunn said that stuck with me for a long time and it was, you know, you can get your client to do all the step-ups, you know, on their step-up in the clinic as much as they want. But if they can't get on the bus, then who cares? Exactly. You know, so it's, yeah. <laughs> it really comes back to that context. It's so important. Absolutely. Okay. I want to go back to myofascial release and ask you what the difference is between that and massage therapy. What, what is it exactly? Um, yeah, good, good question. I'm probably not the best person to answer it. I'll do my best to, to give an answer. Um, um, so I guess looking at uh, fascia is, is probably the first step. Um, so 
fascia is probably something that's relatively newer in terms of the human anatomy and our understanding of it. Um, we basically knew about it, but didn't necessarily know how much relevance it really has um, until probably the last 20, 30 years or so. And uh, to, to basically sum it up for, for people out there, um, fascia, the best explanation I can give is a connective tissue that basically surrounds every everything in our body. So if you even sometimes you have a raw chicken breast and you know it has that sort of thin, clear film that goes around it, sort of whitish, thin, clear film. And that's the best way to basically um, explain what fascia looks like, or what it is. Um, and that gives a better understanding to people. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that sometimes. And that's basically a covering and it covers I mean, it covers your, your bone, which is called your periosteum, um, covers your muscles, covers your organs as well. Um, and like I said earlier, we, we didn't realize how much of an influence that has. But if that has adhesions or restrictions or um, basically has a bit of dysfunction, that's going to disrupt the underlying tissue, whether it be bone or whether it be musculoskeletal tissue, nerves, all that sort of stuff as well. So um I guess the, the, the looking at the myofascia is, is understanding that those can have uh, an injury to that or can have a restriction which can impact on the underlying structure. Um, and yeah, I guess just understanding that rather than just thinking about the muscle or the bone itself, understanding again the, the different parts and the components and how they interplay together and how they can, can impact on one another. Mm -hmm. And so with the release, what do, you do, what do you do exactly? What does the therapy look like? Yeah, so there's there's a bit of uh, controversy around around in that, and it's it's probably um, I probably didn't use the most uh, best describing word for that. So when you're talking release, there's a bit of controversy whether you can actually release that or not. But basically, working through and and it's on another point as well. Trigger points have also come up with a bit of controversy as well. But basically, what we're doing is an active release technique, um, and and it's. Sometimes you can actually do this yourself with like a, a, a trigger ball or a foam roll or something like that. And basically what we're doing is pinning down the underlying structure and then elongating that uh, joint through its range of motion. And that just basically helps to break up the fibers a little bit and get a little bit better blood flow to that area um, because uh, blood is obviously how we heal. So we want to promote that as, as best we can. So uh, it, yeah, it can look very different. Some people like to do um, uh, trigger points. Some people like to do dry needling as well. Um, but yeah, I guess it, it depends on the practitioner, but basically it's, it's trying to get that fascia to get back to its normal length and not be co so constricted. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so with dry needling, now that you've mentioned that, <laughs> um, is this something that you do in your practice and is this all under the OT scope of practice? Yeah, so um, we've um, done extensive uh, postgrad course on, on um, uh, dry needling is run by a, the one that we did was run by a um, doctor of physiotherapy. Um, he was really, really great. And it's a, it's a huge undertaking. And you do, I think it's, I think it's about 20 hours of uh, learning. And then you do a two day course and then a one day uh, wet lab, at least that, that's how our um, course ran. And then basically you learn how to do yeah, dry needling really. And then, yeah, there's something that we practice in our, in our clinic. I think it's, it's probably, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, it's probably something that, that's probably overused a little bit in terms of I've been to myself to a practitioner who basically just stuck a couple of needles in my traps and then left the room and left me there for 10 minutes. And I was like, well, 
is, is that it? Like what's what's going on here? Um, so I think it's it's basically, I like to look at it as a, as a tool that you can use. I don't think it's a be all and end all, but it's definitely a helpful tool that you can use. And, and yeah, it's something that we use in, in, in practice, depending on the person and again, the presentation in front of us, but it is can be very, very useful um, to tools to use. And yeah, it does fall under the scope of um, OTs. We've yeah, obviously for legal reasons, um, done a bit of research into that. Um, as long as we get them to sign a uh, initial patient form and, and basically explaining to the patient in front of us the uh, risks and the concerns which i think any practitioner should do irrelevant to ot whether you're physio um uh, i know a lot of uh remedial massage therapists do it as well i think explain that to the to the patient as long as they understand and get that inf informed consent um then you then you're right to use it in your scope of practice yeah awesome okay that's fantastic so there's so many different things that you are obviously so many different intervention approaches that you're drawing upon within your clinic. And I know also you do some nutrition education as part of it too. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's uh, primarily more um, Taylor's thing. She's actually an accredited diet and nutrition advisor. So you've done an extra course and training on that. Um, and I guess it, it it sort of touch on what we were saying earlier. We're looking at all those pieces of the puzzle, right? And I think diet and nutrition is a huge, massive, massive part of that. So we wanted to get a better understanding of that um, and, and its relevance. So that's probably more Taylor's side of things because she's she's obviously got better better um, learnings and, and is actually qualified to speak on that a little bit more. But I think just understanding that that is another piece of the puzzle and, and realizing that if, say, for example, I guess using practical examples use best, but um, one of my runners came in, um, a really, really good master's athlete, uh, marathon runner. Um, and she yeah, is an absolute machine. If you want, if you want to get inspired by somebody who runs, um, she is really amazing. And basically she came to me with a, uh, bone stress injury. Um, so bone stress injury is basically what we classify below sort of a stress injury for the bone. And, um, she's had a couple of these over her career and she just really couldn't figure out what was really causing it. Um, and one part was definitely the amount of training that she was doing. Um, I think that's that's a key um, part of, of this kind of condition when we're talking about bone injuries is the amount of over, overtraining that happens, but also the fact that she wasn't fueling adequately to basically keep up with the training. So we basically looked at the factors and we spoke about, you know, the, the normal sort of stuff of when did the injury occur, how did it occur, what's your training like, but then also sort of started speaking about um, what's your nutrition like, what's your diet like, what's your sleep like. And then we were able to identify that those, I guess, pieces were a little bit um, lower than what they should be or what they what they should be for the um, level that she was putting on her body. And then understanding that, again, that's a that's a piece that we can change or a piece that we can improve to, to enable them to function better. And, and nutrition is a big, big one when it comes to those type of injuries. So understanding, again, that that's another facet that makes us who we are, how we eat, our diet and how we take care of our body. Um, plays in again to the, the OT or soft tissue OT look on, on injuries. Mm. And so this falls under OT scope as well? Um, to, to a certain extent. I mean, we definitely refer out to dietitians when it's necessary. We, at our, our, our East Perth Clinic, we've got a, um, a nutritionist and dietitian um, as well. And uh, we can always refer out, refer out to GPs. So we don't necessarily give a eating plan or like a nutrition plan. Um, but it's just basically talking with them. And then when we need to, we'll refer out to those, I guess, better better clinicians who specialize in those areas. Yeah, great. And are there any other um, health professionals that you're constantly liaising with or referring to? 
Yes, I think there's quite a few. Um, uh, podiatrists, having a podiatrist on your on your side is really, really great, especially when we're dealing with, again, endurance athletes, which we tend to do quite a, quite a lot of. Um, being able to refer out to somebody who you trust and you know is an expert in that, in that area makes a big difference. So whether somebody's got you know, flat feet or they've got a valgus going on. Um, obviously, we don't make orthotics or, or anything like that. So being able to refer out to, to a podiatrist is important because um, they can take care of that. Um, GPs is, is massive. Having a, having a GP that, that um, or several GPs that actually understand what we do, but also someone that we can actually ad adequately refer to. Um, and uh, that makes a big difference. We also do, like I said, nutrition, dietitians, uh, physios as well we refer out sometimes physios we think that their scope probably suits better for the for the clientele or the person in front of us um yeah so so i guess it depends on the person in front of you really but we try and access when we need to and we think it's probably going to be more beneficial to the patient than we do refer out to to different uh, allied health so when we go to the physios and, and you make a referral to a physio, what kind of referrals are they? What are the things that fall better within their scope when we're talking about soft tissue injuries or issues? Um, I like to, again, probably a bit of bias, but I like to say we'll, we'll take a crack at anything. I think if, if um, we're very, very similar, I guess, in, in our scope of practice. So that's why we can have a little bit of overlap between it. But if it's something that um, requires probably a little bit more of a heavy loading um, exercise rehabilitation. So um, our current clinic and the way we set up uh, offers some exercise intervention, but we don't have the full array, like a fully kitted out gym, something that I'd like to have in the future. Um, but for now, if we feel like a patient needs to really get back into it, um, heavy loading again working one of my patients I had was a um, Olympic lifter so he was really really strong and, and like a strong man and I like to do that sort of stuff so we basically took over the initial part the cute I guess presentation and then when it was time for him to start really progressing and getting back to the heavyweights um, that's where we referred out and, and got a physio on board because they actually had the facility in the area to provide you know a big massive squat rack with you know, 350 kgs which is what this guy required so um, that was probably the best scope um, yeah, it, it really depends, but it's very limited. I guess I refer a lot to physios from that point of view, but that's probably our main clientele when we can't, we don't have the facilities to offer that sort of stuff. That's when we'll refer out. Okay, right. Okay, so before we start to wrap things up, I, I want to touch on this and dive into it a little bit more regarding the area of soft tissue therapy and how occupational therapists can best be seen in this area how we can really promote ourselves as experts in this area because I can almost guarantee you 99% of people in the community if they had an, a muscular injury or a soft tissue injury of some sort they will go and see a physiotherapist or a physical therapist most people will not know that this is something that occupational therapists look at and what exactly we even do in this area. So how can we promote our amazing profession? How can we become known as the professionals in this area? Yeah, that's the big question. It's probably our, our biggest Achilles heel is the lack of, like, not brand as in like the, the business, but brand awareness as in the speciality. Um, and I think that's something that we're probably going to battle for for many years to come. Um, and we've taken it on ourselves, Perth Injury Pain Clinic, to basically spread awareness of what we do so that for future generations and, and OTs out there can really sort of make a name for themselves in this area. Um, that's our, our biggest, uh, I guess, battle that we face day to day is, like you said, as soon as somebody has an injury, it's off to see the physio. 
um, even working with um, uh, sporting teams as well. Like most of them have, or at least the upper level of, of sporting, they have their own physios that come down and work with them as well. So what we can do is basically trying to just spread awareness and, and build the build the awareness of what we do. So build the brand of, of soft tissue occupational therapy and, and just get more education out there, really explain to patients and the whole population that, hey, this is what we do, this is what we offer. Um, we're really good at what we do um, and being able to sort of promote that. So I think using social media is, is a really big one. Um, I probably have to admit that it's been a steep learn, learning curve myself. Um, before, <laughs> before I... Uh, basically did my own business. I didn't even have an Instagram account. I was literally, I, I didn't use any of that. So that's been a real massive uh, learning curve for me, but I think it's such a great tool because it's building up that, that uh, I guess following is so important and you've done this so well, is, is building up that following so that people can actually, I mean, it's a great tool because it's free at the end of the day. You can jump on Instagram and look, look up exercises or look up rehab, look up information about injuries and just being able to spread that awareness and then linking it back to, again, your OT. So how we can, as OT, basically impart our perspective on that and how we can, as OTs, take that holistic view and that different perspective into it. I think it's a massive battle and we're, we're taking it on, trying to do it, improve it each day. Um, unfortunately, there hasn't been, from my opinion, it hasn't been as much um, brand promotion as there should have been in, from previous um, uh, years. Uh, it's something that I hope to change with with new um, new soft tissue OTs coming through because um, this has been an area that's been around for, for 20 odd years or so. So I think it should have been a lot more progressed in my opinion. Um, but yeah, we're taking that, that onus on ourselves and we want to really promote it moving forward for not only our own benefit, but also for the benefit of future uh, OTs to come. Mm, and the community. Hello. Like, you know, yeah. how many people would benefit from knowing that there is a profession that can help them get back to whatever it is that they love to do, you know? Absolutely. And taking a very holistic approach to this. Um, yeah. I think, I think that, Definitely. that is the but, message we need to get out. Yeah. And I think, I mean, uh, with my with my um, friends that I went through uni with, um, their OTs, I always try and tell them, like, try and promote it. I try and promote their areas, whether they be in pediatrics or anything. It's, it's probably a little bit different because they don't necessarily or the vast majority of them don't have their own businesses so that they sort of focus in their lane. But I just try and say as OTs, we should really just try and extend the scope. I mean, one of the OTs that I was really inspired by um, worked in driving and that was his sole, um, I guess, business and his sole uh, scope of practice was working with people, getting them back to be able to drive, whether it be with a disability or recovering from injury. And I thought that was just so amazing. So trying to spread awareness of that is huge so yeah we, we we're trying to do our part of it and i think it, it takes a, a community to really build that like you're saying mm. and this is this is what i love and this is what i'm passionate about and this is really the ot lifestyle movement is being a voice for occupational therapists who are doing things differently or who are doing things how they've always been done but being that voice and a platform for people to say hey this is what we're doing this is how you can do it too let's Absolutely. let's yeah. connect let's collaborate and let's move the profession forward because it is time it's time Absolutely. And I think we're, again, we're probably biased because we are OTs, but I think we're just so perfectly poised um, to work in so many areas and soft tissue in particular. I think it's it's still, I guess, a bit of a dogma as well. Like even when I started out my university, um, being with other OTs and, and like, you know, your first 
first couple of weeks in, in uni, you're finding your friends and all that sort of stuff. And you're speaking about like, oh, what area you're into? Why do you join OT? Why do you want to study OT? And even within that, my own cohort, when I said oh, I'd like to be a soft tissue OT, um, I sometimes would get a few people turning around and be like, oh, well, that's not OT. That's not really OT. And I'm like, well, from its most basic definition, helping people to engage in meaningful occupations, that's literally what we do. So I don't... Uh, to me, it's one of the most important um, soft tissue is one of the most important OT areas because it's so in line with that. I mean, if a person has an injury, whether it be a major disability or whether it be something like, you know, they, they just want to run. They just want to run three times a week and they've got shin splints or they've got Achilles issues. Being able to do that meaningful occupation um, is massive and, and being a part of enabling them to do that, I think, is, is so rewarding. But we're so we're just perfectly poised, in my opinion, to, to take that on. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, I've spoken to hundreds of occupational therapists, either through podcasts or through other interviews that I've done and just in texting, like connecting with them. And I honestly feel like we can cover everything. Like there's nothing that we can't do. Like you could see, you can see an occupational therapist, you know, for your soft tissue injury, you can see an occupational therapist. If you want life coaching, you can see an occupational therapist if your child is having some challenges with their development, you can see an occupational therapist. If, you know, X, Y, Z, the list could go on and on and on. And I feel like we need to be out there just, just raising our voices, raising our vibration and saying, hey, this is what we do. This is how we can serve you. Um, Absolutely, I think it's 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 such an interesting one, and I I, I agree with you completely. When, when when people say, "Oh, what does an OT do?" I say, "Well, think about any occupation, and we can help." <laughs> I mean, like you say, I mean that, that's and, and I guess also the branding as well. The, the word occupation deceives people, obviously, with they think it's work related. So that's something that we also try to change as well. Is why would I see an occupational therapist? It's not related to work, and I'm like, well, occupation in its very uh, definition is a meaningful activity right so um it's it's i think it's it's we can literally work in any area i, I know i was talking to another occupational therapist actually from i think it was in dubai or uae um, and he's basically working with with pilots um, working with setting up their cockpits in a more effective way and i was like wow that's such such amazing so literally any area you think ot's can work in so i think it's so amazing and at the same time i think I think we're probably a little bit um, shy as a, as a profession is probably the best way to describe it. And the fact that we don't necessarily, not, not to be boastful or anything like that, but we don't necessarily promote ourselves the way that other professions do. Um, and I think that's probably also something that, that hopefully, I think you're doing a good job of changing and hopefully we're doing a good job as well. It's actually, you know, we're, we're, we're good in this area. We're good at what we do and we should be here. And um, we don't have to sort of put ourselves as a second rate profession compared to others. I think we, we, we're as good, if not better than, than other professions as well. And I think we, it's time we basically, you know, admit that and actually say, yeah, we're good at what we do we're here. We're OTs and, and, and we're here. A hundred percent. And maybe we need to open this up right here, right now and say, anyone listening to this, maybe we can we can get together and somehow do something to be that voice for the profession and stop being shy and start stepping up because yeah. this is exactly what we need and and there's no better time than now we are sure. the current profession of occupational therapists right and we are leading the profession into the future if it's not us who's it going to be exactly. so yeah, yeah. 100%. Okay. I, can't, I can't agree with you more all right okay jordan 
Let's dive into the three rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> All righty. In one sentence, how do you describe OT? <sighs> one sentence, pretty tricky. Um, OT enables you to engage in meaningful occupations. I think that sums it up so well. Yeah, perfect. Number two, what's one healthy lifestyle habit that listeners can implement today? Whew. Uh, I could I could get take this in so many different different uh, different areas. One, I'll try and keep it practical and easy. I think one thing that we can do is is to just take a second to actually um, realize that that basically we we can do what we want, but we got to we got to put in the work, right? And I think your latest post I was actually uh, listening to this morning, just consistency really is. Let's just try and be consistent, whether it be work, personal, um, sporting, diet anything otherwise just be consistent and, and put in the time there i think that's such a such a good thing and you'll it takes it takes a while but you will definitely reap the benefits of it so consistency yeah i love that and number three if you could only offer one piece of advice to the ot's listening right now what would it be follow your passion i think that's a big one um i think as the saying goes if you, if you do something you love you'll never work a day in your life and i think it's so true I found out from myself, like if I could be all day, every day in clinic, just seeing patients, I, I would love it. If I could see a hundred patients a day, I would, I would, I would, don't think I would ever get tired of it. I don't necessarily like the, the or love the business side as much. Um, it's something that I'm learning as I go along, but I think just following your passion and actually being involved in what you can do. And I think again, learning from your advice, being able to tap into that. Again, OTs are so <laughs> well-placed to do so, but I mean, as long as you follow your passion, I know one of one of my friends who was basically a very, very smart guy, um, studied accounting, was set up, um, had a great job earning 150K a year, and, and he was very, very set up, but didn't enjoy it. And now basically what he's done is, is he's quit his job and he, and he talks about, um, I think it's, I don't want to get it wrong, Dragon Ball Z. Um, that's his passion and he literally runs a podcast and, and talks about it. he's got a website and he he earns good money off that and he loves it and he said he would he would never go back ever again because it's what he what he loves doing so I think following your passion is, is huge you're speaking to my soul Jordan <laughs> I'm lighting up no it's so good and yeah I talk a lot about blurring the lines between work and play you know if we can get into this space and we don't know if it's work and we don't know if it's play it's just it's life then this is this is the beauty of it you know i think so Absolutely. many people get to the end of their life unfortunately and look back and think i wish i had a dot 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 and um you know okay. th yeah. this is right now so we can we can make those choices to take us in a direction that we truly desire absolutely i can't agree more all righty jordan how does everyone find out more about perth injury and pain clinic where do they find you what's your website give us all the details uh, yeah, so our um, our handle on, on social media is at Perth IPC um, on Instagram, uh, Perth Injury and Pain Clinic on Facebook. Um, our website is www.perthipc.com.au. Um, we try and put out a lot of information. We're probably not not as consistent as I'd like to be. Trying to aim for daily, but sometimes running a business plus um, we're, we're, me and my fiance in the process of of planning a wedding um, as well. So that adds extra <laughs> complexion to the whole uh, or complexity to the whole uh, situation as well. But we try and spread as much as we can, and also just I think 
what we're trying to do is also just spread useful information that we can actually use because there's a million people out there that are showing you exercises, a million people out there showing you um, stretches. What we're trying to do is, is do a little bit of that, but also making it more practical for the person in front of you and how um, basically sharing useful information rather than just following the rest of the mill. Um, yeah, and feel free to, to, to email me as well. I always love having conversations with, with OTs or, or people who are interested in the area of soft tissue occupational therapy. Um, I probably get two or three emails a week um, from university students or people that are interested in the area. So yeah, please feel free to, to shoot me an email as well. I'd be more than happy to talk with um, people about it. As, again, I love, love soft tissue so much that yeah, I never, never shy away from a chat. So yeah, feel free to get in contact with me that way as well. <laughs> watch out you might just have opened the floodgates there <laughs> all right thank you so much Jordan I really appreciate it I have learned so much and I know that the OTs who are listening in today can surely take something away from this conversation to implement in their soft tissue practice or just even some takeaways um, that is something that we can look at and reflect on in whatever practice that we're working in so thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it Thank you. Yeah, it's been my absolute pleasure being here. I really, really appreciate you having me on this podcast. And a big thank you to, to yourself. I think it's you're doing such a great, great job of spreading the, 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 the light of our profession. And I think you do it so well. So I have to really, really um, say big, big thanks to you for all your work that you do as well. Ah, cheers. Thanks, Jordan. Take care. That's it, guys. I hope this episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope it inspires you to take action. If you hang out over on Instagram, come over and connect. You'll find me at Rhiannon Chris. And we'd absolutely love your radiant energy in our Facebook group family. You can find us simply by searching the OT Lifestyle Movement in Facebook. If you did love this episode, I would be super grateful if you shared it within your own OT team, or you can take a screenshot right now and share it on Instagram or Facebook so we can connect with more amazing open-minded OTs. The more we share the OT lifestyle movement, the more we can create a ripple effect. And if you do love the podcast, please give us a five-star review. This means that we can be found more easily. So that's it, guys. Go out, create the epic change you seek in the world, one occupation at a time.